3: The home of Common Sense. Talk Radio and Talk TV.
1: Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. The sky is actually blue this morning. It is a Monday. Uh, we are about to enter into yet another month. April uh, is looming large. It's coming on Saturday, the 1st of April, of course. Meanwhile, this week is going to be yet another rip-snorter, I have to say, uh, with all more uh, um, music coming to your ears that you might like to hear, some music that you might not like to hear. Uh, this morning we've got the Daily Mail front page. It says sex offenders let off crimes just by saying sorry. Brilliant. Over a thousand people, including rapists, have escaped with absolutely no criminal record whatsoever just because they've managed to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I raped you. Uh, I'm sorry that I molested you. Uh, I'm sorry that I sexually assaulted you. I'm really sorry. Just sorry. That's fine then. Let's not worry about arresting people anymore. Why don't we just go to their house, ask them if they're sorry, and then leave it at that. Sorry, what's that you say? Sorry? Sorry? No, Um, we can't go to the house. No, because we haven't got enough police officers. Right. This is at the same time as the Telegraph have got, Prime Minister targets beggars in a crackdown on crime. Because if there's one thing you need to do, right, is to crack down on the beggars while sex offenders get away with it. Because that certainly seems to me to be the way to approach criminal justice in this country. We'll be talking to Ben Habib, member of Reform UK and a former MEP, of course, as well. I mean, what is going on? Uh, They're going to crack down on beggars. They're going to crack down on antisocial behaviour. They're going to try and make it illegal for you to smoke one of those ridiculous balloon things. Um, Or whatever it is, however you inhale it, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what people do, but you see them all over the place. Anyway, they're going to make that illegal. Um, But just say sorry for a really, really serious sexual offence and that'll be fine. Incredible, isn't it? Absolutely unbelievable. We'll also be talking, of course, um, about uh, the latest from the European Court of Human Rights. We'll also be talking about Rishi Sunak's plan uh, to open safe routes for 20,000 migrants a year. Yeah, good luck with that. 20,000, you say? Uh, with 20,000 landed on the beaches last week, for God's sake. That's not stopping anytime soon. Lots more going on. Carol Sikora is going to join us. He's managed to say uh, that hopefully he has managed to get some of his former cancer centres reopened in time for the NHS to start treating people. Uh, we're going to be talking to Tom McNeil, Assistant Police and Crime Commissioner in the West Midlands. West Midlands crime, by the way, going through the roof. Peter Hitchens is here. For those of you who don't like the fact that the clocks have gone forward for spring, spring forward, fall back, remember that? Um, you might hear once more Peter's reasons why we should not be doing the clock-changing thing. It dates all the way back to Germany and the First World War, for heaven's sake. We'll also go up to Scotland, uh, where they're having more fun and games with the SNP. Today is the day they announced the new leader, and therefore the new First Minister, who's going to take over from Nicola Sturgeon. Uh, Also, Howard Cox is going to join us, because there's quite a few car stories to deal with, not least uh, the fact that electric car owners are now going to be charged a fine if they leave their car charging for too long. Uh, Also, we're going to be talking about some of these uh, ultra-low emission zones because, quite frankly, they are hitting every single part of the country now. Newcastle's got one. Uh, We've got one in Bristol. We've got one in Birmingham. uh, We've got one in Manchester coming uh, very soon. We've got one in Leeds coming very soon. Also, by the way, Sadiq Khan, you know, uh, the Mayor of London, that guy, uh, he's got some kind of a cycling czar who's in charge of making sure the cycling lanes are put in in the right way. He's also keen to make sure the cyclists behave in the right way way he was out at the weekend and standing over one of those zebra crossings where cyclists are supposed to stop to let pedestrians pass but of course they don't Uh, he tried to get one of the cyclists to stop he got smacked in the mush for his trouble so the cycling czar attacked by a cyclist brilliant brilliant it's all going so well isn't it 0344 499 1000 is the number that's the number to call uh, you know where to get your common sense you get it here every single day from 10 o'clock every single uh, daily uh, morning and of course a podcast after every afternoon uh, you can get that as well just go to the independent republican mike graham on whatever podcast platform you care to go to this is the independent republican mike graham let's get it on Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Lots going on this morning. Let us go straight to our first guest, Ben Habib, member of Reform UK and former MEP. Ben, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. I think it does sum up the paucity of the knowledge of this government about, um, you know, sort of justice and the justice system where sex offenders are getting off crimes just by saying sorry. But don't worry, we're cracking down on the beggars.
4: Well, one is visual and, of course, the other isn't. And, um, you know, this goes to the heart of the way we've been governed for so many years. It's about playing the 24-hour news cycle. It's about trying to make things look better rather than actually making them better. We saw that with the Windsor framework in Northern Ireland. You know, lots of window dressing to make it look like he's got a massive Brexit victory to get Brexit done. Well, actually, when you scrutinise what he's doing, it's... A disaster. The Windsor Framework, in many respects, is worse than the Northern Ireland Protocol. And here you have it again with this issue. You know, they would rather get beggars off the street, which, by the way, I support. I don't think we should have beggars and rough sleepers on the streets. I think, you know, it's, it, we're a first world country. For goodness' sake, we should be able to take care of take care of our own. They shouldn't be on the street. Yeah. But sex offenders going unpunished, and of course, it's you know, it's easy targets as well, Mike, isn't it? As we all know. You know, if you if you do 25 miles an hour to a 20 mile an hour speed zone, they'll nail you for it. But mm. if you sex offend, all you have to do is <laughs> apparently is just apologise. I mean, the country is um, it's it's not being governed. The country is not being governed.
1: I mean, the fact about cracking down on beggars like you, I'm very keen on them doing that because an awful lot of the begging that goes on on the streets of our cities is actually organised crime. It's nothing to do with people who are homeless. It's nothing to do with people uh, who are in any way destitute. In fact, many of them are making more money uh, than they would be making if they were working in some of the shops in the high street. I saw I was in Oxford Street a a, a few weeks ago and I saw four different beggars on four different street corners all had the same sign written in the same uh, handwriting uh, said the exactly same thing And so you are kind of in, uh, sorry guys I mean, this looks like it's, it's been done yeah. for you and it looks like you're sitting here collecting money and of course people it's are good. walking past and giving them money
4: and it just i think it says something like I'm hungry yeah, yeah no no with no I'm I mean was a, there was a you little see them everywhere yeah it was
1: about four yeah. lines of of, of, of handwritten uh, uh, you know cardboard. words but on a cardboard yeah. on a bit of cardboard but it was in exactly the same handwriting
4: Yeah. And it's intimidating, too. You know, it is slightly intimidating. You're going about your daily business and someone approaches you wanting money. Um, It's not, you know, it's not great. No. Um, So I don't endorse it. But there are many greater issues the government needs to, you know, get a grip on. And it needs to do it, you know, such as sex offenders, such as knife crime being up by 30 percent in London, um, such as the economy going through the floor. You know, there's a whole host of other issues that come ahead of, uh, you know, this one.
1: Well, that's the thing. Um, and people who say now, uh, and, and I know many people in London who say now that they don't feel as safe in London as they used to feel, even as recently as two years ago, are not quite sure what's gone wrong. You know, it can't just be the lack of police officers because you actually do see, I mean, when people say, oh, you never see a police officer. I actually do see police officers wandering around London, but there's definitely a sense of menace about the place more than there ever was.
4: There is. Yeah, I don't feel as safe in London as I used to. And I don't know, I can't quite pin... Think- the Reason for it. maybe it's because of what we all read, um, but the stats are bad, Mike. You know, if you look at you know, knife crime is up 30%, um, violent crime generally is up uh, again 30%, I think crime generally is up 20%. So these are very big increases that have taken place over the last four or five years. Um, and Sadi Khan no doubt has a lot to blame over all of this, you know, he's used his position as mayor to politicize policing amongst other things. Yeah. Instead of actually focusing on what really matters with policing. And then we had that awful report last week from Casey on the Metropolitan Police effectively condemning them for being misogynistic, homophobic and racist. And, um, you know, that's not great either. And to start with, when I, you know, when I heard the headline, I, I thought, well, you know, I wonder if this is, again, you know, another one of those attempts to masked the issues with a whole load of flack. But I think some of the examples given by Casey in her report of the way the Met were behaving were just appalling, I, just absolutely eye-bogglingly bad. And, uh, you know, the, again, the Met's out of control. So it's not surprising to some extent that we feel, you know, more threatened on the streets of London.
1: Yeah, exactly right. But I mean, is there any kind of correlation in your view, Ben, to, you know, Rudolf Giuliani did this in New York where he had this kind of theory about if you fix the broken window, you know, crime in general goes down. If you make the um, sort of surrounding area look better, if you take away the beggars, if you take away the kind of uh, the rough sleepers, that somehow everything improves. Um, I mean, there might be some logic to that, but I fear that we're too far gone here with, with drug gangs, with the amount of uh, cocaine that's you know, sort of sifting through the system. It just seems as though there's a bunch of lawless people here who you're not going to stop doing what they do.
4: Yeah, I mean, you know, let's just for a second reflect on what it requires to keep law and order. It's not about having hundreds of thousands of policemen. You could never do that. What it, it's a very fine balance, isn't it, Mike? It's about having confidence if you're a criminal yeah. that you will be caught and punished. Right. It's you know criminals need to know or believe that that will happen. And I think what's happening in in London in particular and I'm sure London's not alone is that that belief of the criminals is being broken. I think people are beginning to think actually we can get away with it. And all these stats indicate a breakdown in that confidence perhaps confidence is not quite the right word but they've got to believe they're going to be caught and punished that's what they need and once that belief goes they're emboldened to go on and commit more crime and you know with, with with sadi politicizing the police and law enforcement actually a blind eye is being turned to the more important aspect of criminals recognizing that they will be caught i mean robert peel recognized this in the early 19th century when he, when he determined that it wasn't the severity of punishment that mattered. It was the knowledge that you would be caught and punished. Yeah. And Um, and that was the risk that
1: they decided to run. But now there's literally no risk. I mean, we talk about London, but I've got uh, coming up later on in this hour, Tom McNeil, the assistant police and crime commissioner from the West Midlands. And I'm looking at some crime stats for the West Midlands in which almost everything is up. Uh, On the year before, antisocial behaviour, 72,500 crimes, right? Uh, When you go all the way down to uh, violence and sexual offences, 267,568 crimes, a 44% increase on the year before. I mean, that can only tell you one thing that people aren't scared of being caught at all.
4: Yeah, they're being emboldened. And the more those numbers come out and the more people recognise that they can get away with it, the more they'll do it. And of course, then the greater the difficulty for getting that problem under control. Yes. Because the police are going to run ragged. They couldn't possibly begin to address all these crimes. And then you get the ri- ridiculous kind of result that you just you know, quoted from mm. the Daily Mail it was, where yeah. sex offenders simply have to say sorry. Yeah. There's, no, there's no alternative because we can't police the situation. It's getting out of control. Right. So yeah. we, need, we need to reintroduce a zero tolerance. and We really need a crackdown. We really need a crackdown. Sadiq Khan needs to get behind the Metropolitan Police and be telling them, Mm. look, I don't want you to be ingratiating yourself with the local populace. I don't care whether they like you or not. They need to respect you. They need to fear you. They need to know that if a Bobby's walking down the street, there's a chance of arrest if you're committing a misdemeanor.
1: Mm.
4: You know, that's the message that has to be driven home.
1: Absolutely right. Ben, so there we are. We're going to talk about a new Rishi Sunak plan to to stop the migrants. You know, we've heard many plans. This is a new one that we're going to be telling you about a safe and legal route that they want to set up. We'll find out what Ben Habib makes of all that coming soon, very shortly. This is, of course, Talk TV. More after this.
3: See it, hear it, think it. Talk radio and Talk TV.
1: Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham. I'm being asked by uh, somebody who doesn't give a name, but uh, I'd almost forgotten about it, but I'm glad you reminded me. Uh, Please could you remind everybody, Mike, uh, that Andy Burnham uh, has been fined nearly £2,000 for doing 78 miles an hour in a 40-mile-an-hour restricted uh, area on a motorway. Uh, Complete hypocrite. Yeah, Andy Burnham, the man that wants to bring in congestion charging to Manchester, the man that wants to put a ring around the centre of Manchester to stop people driving in it, uh, was apparently done for doing about 70 miles per hour, or thereabouts, uh, in a 40. That's quite bad. Uh, Find a couple of thousand quid I think he got six points on his license as well uh, Tony in Barrow and Furness says Mike beggars in my town were from Romania but lived in Manchester on benefits they traveled by train to Lancaster where they got picked up by a Christian group from Kendall who dropped one off in Lancaster uh, Penrith, Kendall, Olverston, Barrow and Furness the big issue in Kendall said they were earning £300 a week each plus their dole and rent and they all seem to have gold teeth amazing Well, there you go. Uh, Let's talk to Ben Habib, because we've got more to talk to him about, particularly when it comes to uh, the Stop the boats campaign. Uh, The the latest from Rishi Sunak uh, is that he's going to be offering 20,000 migrants a safe and legal route to the United Kingdom. Each week, each year, um, part of a scheme developed in partnerships with the UN's Refugee Agency. I mean, we just keep hearing on and on and on, Ben, don't we? Uh, Here's another scheme. Here's another plan. uh, Here's another way we're going to make it uh, controllable. They basically don't know what to do, do they?
4: No, they don't know what to do. And I think let's just debug the problem for a second, Mike. Um, If you wish to deport someone from the United Kingdom, you have to hear their case you have to hear their individual case at the moment. That's how the law is set up. It doesn't matter whether you got to the United Kingdom legally or illegally. If we wish to deport deport them, they have a right to be heard individually. And that's the problem at the heart of the human rights issue is that every single case needs to be heard individually and they can appeal it all the way up to the Supreme Court and then the European Court of Human Rights. And there are special immigration uh, commissions as well to which they can appeal. So it's a very protracted, complex procedure to deport someone. And then even if you get an order to deport them, you have to have a country to which you can send them. Mm. If, if they come from a country like Iran, for example, or Afghanistan, where we don't have a, an agreement to deport them to, well, getting the theoretical judgment in favor of deportation doesn't help because you've got nowhere to send them. So deportation is a fundamentally fraught, uh response mm. to illegal migration to this country what this illegal migration bill seeks to do is to get rid of individual cases being heard and to give the secretary of state uh, indeed oblige the secretary of state to deport detain and deport anyone who can the country illegal, illegally so a kind of blanket legal right and obligation to detain and deport people who come here illegally but what it crucially doesn't do is take us out of the European Convention of Human Rights. So even though the bill says that, ultimately these people will be able to appeal all the way through the European Court of Human Rights. And again, their case will be heard individually. So you're back at square one. The illegal migration bill as it's drafted does not work. In fact, there's a specific carve out requiring the Secretary of State to take note of ECHR rulings European Court of Human Rights rulings, so deportation as a response to illegal migration doesn't work the Secretary of State needs to recognize that the government needs to recognize that they need to stop playing the 24-hour news cycle by coming up with new forms of legislation to apparently address these illegal crossings and recognize that the only way Mike, and I've said this before many times, I'm gonna say it again. The only way to stop illegal crossings of the channel is by having a robust physical response to those dinghies seeking to enter British territorial Mm. waters. These are people who have, they're, they're in a safe country, they're in France, no one is compelling them to make that dangerous journey across the channel. They choose to make it and they should be intercepted by border force at the point of entry into our territorial waters, we possess all the international laws that we need on our side in order to stop them at that point and direct them back to France. That's what we need to do. That is called border control. If we do that, we don't get caught in the legal quagmire that is the deportation process. And make no mistake, there's no way this government and any, indeed, any British government is coming out of the European Convention of Human Rights. When they talk about neutering the ECHR, um, making sure the European Court of Human Rights doesn't have supreme sway in the United Kingdom, they are just playing the 24-hour news cycle. They are abrogating their responsibility to deal with this problem. We have all the tools we already need to deal with it, and that is at the bought point that these boats seek to enter British territorial waters. And while I'm at it, paying France half a billion pounds over 3 years in order to try and convince France to do what it should naturally be doing which is controlling its own outflow of illegal migrants these people putting their lives in danger coming across the channel is is ridiculous we're actually inculcating bad habits in yes. the french we're telling them: the more people they send to us, the more money well, they're going to get. I mean, every we joke, our, you
1: and I you and I joked about it the other week, didn't we? They seem to have misunderstood the fundamental principle of the actual arrangement. They seem to think that for all the exactly. money we give them, they send us one migrant per pound that we give them, because that's what it feels like. Yeah. You know, every time we exactly. give them, you know, a couple of hundred million, you know, they send us, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands more people. But again. These are rules, as you say, with the ECHR and everything else that we already have. We don't need to change anything. Similarly, uh, with this kind of crackdown on antisocial behaviour, there are already laws in place to stop antisocial behaviour. We're just not carrying them out.
4: Absolutely. And, you know, we tend to look at these individual, these cases, these issues as in in individual silos. But, of course, they're all related, aren't they, Mike? You know, we're going to have more rough sleepers. We're going to have more antisocial Mm. behaviour. We're going to have more crime if we've got unbridled, illegal immigration, where people are coming into this country, irrespective of what the sort of open border brigade uh, wish to paint, these people are not known to us. We haven't vetted them. We don't know why they came here. We don't know where they came from. We don't know their backgrounds. The whole point about a visa program, the whole point about legal routes, and we do have very good legal routes already from Mm. dangerous countries, And we've taken in over half a a million refugees in the last eight years, that's 60,000 a year. Refugees we've taken in voluntarily through legal routes. We're a very generous country, but this kind of open border brigade, what they will not recognize, and people like Gary Lineker, is that these people pose a threat to the United Kingdom. We don't know who they are. Just because they've crossed the channel, ostensibly because they claim they're refugees, doesn't mean they are refugees. A lot of them, We'll come from places where they have an antipathy to the United Kingdom where they hold our values our history our heritage and our systems in contempt yeah. and and we're and, and we're stupid enough to let them in yeah well it, at the very least
1: know, at the very least whether they or may or may not be people who have links to terrorist organizations they certainly have links to organized crime and they're certainly coming here to carry out organized crime because these are the people well, who by and large are making the trip
4: they, well, they've committed a crime by crossing the channel right. they, enter the country illegally, whether they then go on to get asylum or not, is not the point. The point is they've come to this country illegally. Mm. And it has to be stopped. It has to be stopped robustly. And it has to be stopped the channel. And the border force won't do its job. Actually, reform party's view is you dismiss border force, and you get a force that will actually do what is required to be done a trained to do it, understand how to do it safely and push these boats back into French water. If they're capable of making it from Calais to the point of our territorial waters, they're perfectly capable Of making it back again.
1: Yes, exactly right. What a very sensible thing to say. Ben, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Ben Habib there, uh, member of Reform UK, former MEP, of course, as well. We're going to be talking, coming up, some more about this anti-social behaviour crackdown uh, that the the government is due to announce or is due to get going. Uh, We're going to be talking to Tom McNeil, who's the Assistant Police and Crime Commissioner for the West Midlands. West Midlands crime is absolutely rocketing up and we want to find out from him why that is and whether This new crackdown will make any difference whatsoever. But we want to hear from you as well. 0344 499 1000. Brian says, I don't understand why a lot of people just want our streets full of police. We just want the police to do the job they have signed up to do. Having thousands more police on the street sounds more like a police state to me than a free and open democracy. It's a good point. There's plenty of police. There's no shortage of police. They keep saying, oh, we haven't got enough police. Well, they've got plenty of police when they need them. They've got plenty of police when they need to police a demonstration or a football match or when they have to, you know, turn out to do something that they're supposed to like doing. There's plenty of them. They just don't do what they're supposed to do. This is Talk TV.
3: On DAB Plus, on the app, Talk Radio and Talk TV.
1: Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. We are here for one thing and one thing only, to establish the truth, uh, to tell you what it is, uh, and then to let you decide uh, what you want to say about it. Because that, of course, is what Talk TV is all about. You can call us oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand. You can tweet us, of course, at Talk TV or me at I-R-O-M-G. And, of course, if you wish, uh, you can even send us a text message uh, to 87222. Start your message with the word TALK. Uh, and that will be charged at the national rate. Let us talk now, though, to Tom McNeil, Assistant Police and Crime Commissioner for the West Midlands. The government has announced this morning, it's on the front page of the uh, Telegraph, they're going with the beggars. PM targets beggars in a crackdown on crime. But basically, he's trying to tackle antisocial behaviour in particular uh, and in all parts of the country. Uh, Tom, a very good morning to you.
5: Good morning. Is this a welcome a move by the government to you? What is definitely welcome is the acknowledgement that there is a big antisocial behaviour problem, because there is, uh, and we get contacted by residents every day. So we really do want to see it cracked down on. So we welcome the recognition. But the real problem is, in the West Midlands, we have lost over 2,200 police officers over the last 10 years. We've lost uh, millions of pounds of investment in youth services, in 7th misuse youth services. And so all these factors have led to a rise in social behaviour. So while it's great that they're recognising the problem, if we don't have the right kind of resources, we're not going to be able to actually tackle the issue. We welcome any additional investment, but it has to be enough to deal with the problem. And I should say, we don't have enough police officers in the West Midlands, even with some of the government uplift. There's still going to be 1,000 police officers worse off than in 2010, hundreds fewer staff as well. And with major issues like violence against women and girls and youth violence, it isn't
1: enough. Yeah. We were told uh, when the Metro on Police Report came out from Baroness Casey that in London, certainly, there's an awful lot of police who are kind of on leave or on sick leave or suspended for whatever reason. Do you have the same problem in the West Midlands?
5: But mainly, uh, police officers in the West Midlands work a huge amount of overtime and are incredibly stressed and are working really, really long hours. And a lot of staff are working incredibly long hours as well. Actually, um, one of the big problems that we face is a huge amount of stress and post-traumatic stress disorder among police officers across the country actually because they're dealing with seriously violent incidents and issues of sexual offences and everything else so i don't think this is an issue of police officers not working hard enough or being on leave in the west midlands hundreds fewer staff hundreds fewer officers. We really want to make a dent in antisocial behaviour. We really do need a proper investment. Yeah, no, in I'm
1: that. not. I'm not suggesting they're not off for a good reason. I'm just wondering how many there are who are actually not at work and whether that has an impact on the day-to-day running of the operation.
5: During COVID-19, there was undoubtedly uh, an issue with a lot of people off in sickness. But actually, what we really found was that it was the police who were there to hold the front line during those really difficult times. So while I don't have uh, specific statistic for you, that is not the biggest problem we're facing. The main problem we're facing is being the fifth worst funded police force in the country and not having enough staff and officers to deal with serious crime, like youth crime and organised crime, but also dealing with antisocial behaviour, which we agree absolutely needs to have a crackdown on.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at some figures from the West Midlands Crime Summary, which I think is for the year 2022. So that's the latest one I've got. Uh, It says antisocial behaviour, number of offences, 72,520. That's up 12 percent. But more worryingly, perhaps, uh, violent and sexual offences, up 44%, I mean, nearly 45%, 267,568. I mean, that's an awful lot. It seems to me, and I've been talking to Ben Habib about this, that the reason why so much crime is happening now is because the justice system um, is not something that is feared in this country anymore, that people commit crimes knowing pretty well uh, that they
5: might get away with it. Well, the first point I'd make is when we look at the criminal justice service, the Crown Prosecution Service, probation courts all had their budgets cut by 25%, as did the police. So we've got record court backlogs. So it's definitely true that there's some people out there, some people committing the most serious crimes, mm. and that includes rape and sexual offences, who still haven't had justice imposed on them. So there will be some people who do think that, with the current underfunding, that they can get away with it. But we also need to look at some of the underlying causes of antisocial behaviour and why crime rises, and that's things like addiction, It's things like poor mental ill ill health, and it's also things like the cost of living crisis, where some people choose easy ways to make money because they're struggling to get by. It's not a justification. It's not an excuse, but it's an explanation for why some of the figures are showing a rise.
1: Well, I mean, this is all the way back to 2022, so I'm not sure that that's relevant in this, in this particular case. Uh, we've got drugs f- offences only up 2%, 12,963. Criminal damage and arson only up 9%, 51,000. When I say only, um, it's still an awful lot of crime. Burglary, 32,054. Um, we're told that as a, as a, as a national figure burglary solving uh, uh, is, is, is relatively light in the minuses, practically like 5%, 6% of burglaries are actually solved. So most of those 32,000 burglaries won't have been in, even investigated.
5: Let me just come back to you. What I said before was absolutely crystally relevant. So some of the percentage rises that you see when you're looking at 2022 do relate to uh, um, what's happened during COVID-19. So you had pre-COVID-19 levels. Then you had a big drop in crime because there was huge lockdowns and a lot of crime couldn't occur. And then you've had rises again. So that relatively high level that you had before COVID and what we've got now is off the back of all those issues that I raised before around addiction and poor mental ill health. Um, And then there's also issues around crime reporting, which have changed. But the bottom line is, yes, there's lots of crimes which aren't being solved. And you've got huge court backlogs. And there's absolutely no secret why. Huge cuts to all criminal justice services huge cuts to prevention services including youth centres and addiction support and actually children centres and supporting some families who are in crisis mode which will be causing some of the antisocial behaviour
1: well certainly i mean you might you must not be happy about this one birmingham uh, is 48 percent more dangerous according to this crime summary
5: i'm absolutely not happy at all at some of the crime that we see in birmingham we are desperate to reduce it as much as we can. It's why we, quite frankly, do not shut up about asking for the funding that we know the police needs. We do need more police officers in Westminster. I should say, there are some uh, Tory areas in the UK that have record numbers of police officers. Meanwhile, we have hundreds fewer than we did in 2010. And with the crime issues that we know that places like Birmingham have, we absolutely need those numbers back up to where they were.
1: Well, places that look safer, rugby is safer, Redditch is safer, Nuneaton is safer, Newcastle-under-Lyme is safer, Coventry is more dangerous. Is that because they're Tory areas then?
5: Well West Midlands does have some of the poorest areas in the whole country in all its areas and in Birmingham some of the poorest wards. So you've got a whole host of issues that we know lead to crime such as poverty, such as unemployment, such as intergenerational crime with parents having gone to prison or whatever else. So it's not really a surprise that certain urban areas have higher crime rates and it's the same in other major cities in the uk what we really want to see is proper targeted investment and at the moment we don't have what we had in 2010 and it's crystally obvious why to everybody working in places like birmingham why we're having the problems that we are
1: west bromwich 54 percent more dangerous you don't want to go there
5: well i absolutely do like going to west bromwich <laughs> and thankfully <laughs> Just because places have more crime doesn't mean they're not safe to go to generally, but we want to crack down where there is crime that includes antisocial behaviour. So the risk of sounding like a stuck record, we need that investment because it's all very well, the government having a big headline saying we want to tackle antisocial behaviour. If they're not going to replace the £175 cut to policing since 2010, we're going to really struggle to do that.
1: So what is it they're going to do exactly in order to make antisocial behaviour um, less likely to happen? What what's what have they told you they're going to do for you in your area?
5: Well, we're still waiting for the specific details about what our allocation of funding is going to be. We know that we're going to get a million, and preferably over two years. Um, and we believe as part of that package, there might be some youth service provision uh, and help to help us have partnership working with probation and local authorities. But those figures clearly don't come anywhere near to the millions and millions that have been taken away in CPS, in the courts, in probation, in policing. So we're gonna do our very, very best to make a success of any additional resource that we get, as we always do. But we're gonna have to be honest, this alone won't be enough to reverse the damage.
1: And we talk to a lot of people on a daily basis, as I'm sure you do, um, uh, in a way, Tom. Um, a lot of people say just because you're not well off and because you're suffering perhaps because there's unemployment or because there's you know, difficulty with the cost of living doesn't turn you into a criminal. So there's uh, obviously something else going not. on.
0: Yeah,
5: absolutely not. I mean, the vast majority of people who are on low incomes or going to unemployment don't, get, don't go anywhere near crime. For example, one of the issues we do see is with some young people in areas where there might be gang crime going on, there's a heightened risk of exploitation. So sometimes that's one of the reasons that they might get pulled into crime. Another area of crime that we've seen uh, rising is sometimes uh, parents who are desperate to feed their children and really can't find any other way. Again, we're not excusing that. It's just an explanation about some of the things that happen. But I should say... We know that really high quality support, such as things through children's centres, such as things through family hubs. We've lost many of those since 2010, but we are hoping to rebuild some of those. They can be really effective at helping those families in a desperate time to prevent them falling into crime. And likewise for the young people at risk of exploitation.
1: Right. So, I mean, hopefully when we look at the figures for this year compared to perhaps next year, uh, that will start to see an improvement.
5: I'm worried that this really very low level of investment isn't necessarily going to be enough to make the dent that we want to make. I mean, we're working day in, day out with partners already to try and tackle a lot of these crimes, but we just have to be really honest. If you don't make the right levels of investment, such as in policing numbers, then you're going to get more costly crime down the line. So, when we make these pleas for proper investment, we also recognise that that's going to reduce financial impact over time. So it's a really solid economic argument to do this as well.
1: Okay, Tom, thanks very much indeed for talking to us. Tom McNeil, Assistant Police and Crime Commissioner for the West Midlands, uh, on his view uh, of what the government is going to do with their anti-social behaviour initiative. It looks as if they're certainly going to give more money out to people. But he says it's all to do with poverty. I don't buy that. I don't see why, just because you have uh, lack of money, lack of resources, lack of opportunity, that you suddenly turn to crime. I don't think people do that. I think that is a bit of a slur on the great British people, isn't it? 0344 499 1000. Coming up, uh, we'll take your calls. We'll talk about recycling as well, right here on Talk TV.
3: Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV.
1: Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Peter Hitchens coming up at 11 o'clock. Uh, he's got plenty to say, not least about the clocks going forward, because actually, uh, if you weren't to change the clocks, it would have be only 10 o'clock. And in fact, we would have started an hour earlier. But we can get into that a little bit later on. Let us talk, first of all, about recycling. Apparently, there's a new plan in place from the government in which it might mean that you will have to have not only A recycling bin for all of your recycling. But a recycling bin for more than one thing. So at the moment, for example, you may recycle things into a recycling bin. You might put it in a bag. You might leave the bag outside for the people to come and take it away. You might be able to take it to a recycling plant. You might even be able to put it uh, up to a recycling bin somewhere in the town where you live. You might, in fact, even have to separate things. You might have to put glass in one place plastic in another. You might have to put paper in yet another. That's three things, right? Uh, You might have to put garden waste in another. You might have food waste in another. Um, You might even have um, cans in another. And in fact, you could even have to put something else in a seventh different recycling area. Can you imagine if you had to have seven different recycling bins? Imagine if you lived in a street. I've seen streets like this where you can't walk on the pavement already because every house has got three bins, three wheelie bins. They've got a brown one, which is normally for garden waste. They've got a green one, which is for rubbish, uh, basic rubbish that you don't recycle. I don't really know what that is anymore. I mean, what can you throw out that doesn't get recycled? And the third one uh, will be a recycling bin, which is sometimes blue in certain areas. It depends. I was once given a small red sort of bucket which had a lid on it and a handle. Uh, it was left outside my door. I didn't ask for it. My council had very kindly dropped it there. I've never used it because you know why? I don't wish to put waste food under the sink because it will smell bad. I don't wish to put waste food out on the street because it will be eaten by foxes and or rats. If I put it in the house, it might even be eaten by mice. It might attract them. It might attract flies. I mean, what do you think we're living in some kind of ridiculous third world nation? Plus, as you can see, as I said to Julie hartley Brewer, I don't waste very much food, to be honest. Whatever I cook, I tend to eat. I don't throw it away. And if I did throw it away, it goes in the bin, which gets sealed up and put in the bin outside. Tied up. Not in a bucket. Why would you put a food bucket outside your door? You might as well ask for, you know, the, the vermin of the area to come and just hang out. You just move in. It's ridiculous. Seven, can you imagine if every house had seven bins outside it? There wouldn't be any room for anything else. There'd be no room for cars. There'd be no room uh, for people walking. There'd be no room for cyclists. By the way, I did mention this earlier. Sadiq Khan's cycling uh, guru was attacked by a cyclist over the weekend. Extraordinary. Anyway, so um, I'm not for this recycling business, right? Because everybody knows you don't really get much recycled anyway. Most of what happens is that it gets put in a landfill because they can't be bothered recycling it. What do you think happens to recycled food? Where do you think they put it? Do you think they seriously take it somewhere and put it in a compost heap or do they just chuck it? Of course they do. A bit of noise there. Sorry about that. Clinking. Not sure what that was about. Anyway, never mind. The point is this recycling is an absolute con. It's a rip off, and now they want you to get. I mean, I wish here's something I wish I'd done. I wish I'd invented the wheelie bin. Can you imagine the bloke that invented the wheelie bin has now got an island, private island off the coast of Jamaica somewhere, because he's got so many customers, they were forced to buy them. Every council bought thousands of these things. Unbelievable. Recycling, what an absolute joke. Let's talk to Ben, who's in Bristol. Hello, Ben. Oh,
2: Mike, I can't take this. I can't take this world. I can't take this planet. I, I, I can't take, you know, I, 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 I have had two careers. I don't talk about my job much on your show. No. Mike. I'm going to talk about the two jobs I've done. Now, when I was younger, I worked in the probation service for oh, yeah. eight years. Proper probation service, Mike. Yeah.
6: Do
2: you know one of the things I noticed during those years? About 60 or 70% of the clients were shoplifting. Really? Were shop- where you're back then, yeah. Just reading the Telegraph here, David McKelvey, former detective and ch- chief investigator, said, quote, police rarely attend shoplifting listing cases, and when they do, they don't arrest and don't prosecute. Mm. He gives a story of a woman who was caught stealing 600 quid's worth of perfume. Do you know what the resolution was? Well, they just they let her off. To it, they told her to give it back and apologise. Now, this was completely unheard of. When I was working in the probation service, mm. most of the clients were in for, like, stealing a bottle of vodka from Tesco. Right. You know, there's no deterrent anymore. Right. And it, we've gone soft. And do you know what, as well, my present job, which I don't talk about much in your show, but I actually work as a postman. Okay. And do you know, do you know what? The last few couple of months, all I'm delivering week in, week out, is those, you know, time-sensitive material letters. Oh, yeah. Which are basically speeding, speeding fines.
1: Yeah. You know, Penalty if, if charge notices. Three, PCNs, they call them, don't they, they? I'm
2: telling you straight, this is the facts, yeah? Yeah. Uh, so on the ground, I'm delivering hundreds of them a week. Hundreds. Amazing. Hundreds. And do you, know, do you know, I'm very careful, aware of all this. I hate delivering them. You know, you're just delivering misery yeah. to people. And these aren't like, you know, Wayne and Wayne at a slob. They're just like average people. Yeah. Like, well, you, you cannot you know.
1: drive a car nowadays without getting one of those at least once a well, month.
2: Mike, well, Mike, unfortunately, unfortunately, I thought I was savvy to all of this yeah. Mm. But unfortunately, do you know what came through my door a few days ago? Time sensitive material. And what was and it? Do you, know, do you know what it was? I, I didn't have a clue what it even was. They said you'd driven down a closed lane. I, I don't even know what that even was. Right. I, 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 it, apparently, if you've got a red X over your head on the gantries and oh, you yeah. keep on driving, and, and they leave the lane open, right? Yeah. Total entrapment, yeah? And do you know what they've given me for that? How much, 80? £100 pounds fine, yeah. yeah, plus three points. You're joking. I'm not, I'm not joking. And it makes me realise, I mean, honestly, Mike, I, I'd worked somewhere my overtime the previous day delivering those letters, right. you know, earn 100 quid.
1: This is unbelievable.
2: But this is what's happening. They are now
1: finding, they're finding. I said this last year and I was proved wrong, unfortunately. I said, I don't think they can find any more
2: ways of taxing us. But this is the new way of taxing us, right? They love it. They love it. And and do you know what? It makes me, do you know what, mate? I felt when I picked up that letter, I thought, I hate the police. Hmm. I hate this country and I hate our government. It crushed me emotionally, yeah. and, I, and that's me. And I am and, and I think about, like, a single mum or someone like yeah. that who's going to get that through. There are police in this... I mean, fair enough, if they sent a letter and it was a caution, they said, look, Mrs Daniels, you know, you, you must not drive in this lane. If you do it again, you'll be fine. I would totally accept that. But three points I know. and 100 quid, because they just inadvertently drove in some lane. Is, is it worth appealing it, do you think? Do you know what, Mike? Do you know what the honest truth is? And I hate to say it, I just can't be bothered. Do you
1: know, I had the same problem, right? When, the, the, when we first, uh, the lockdown first happened and I started driving into work instead of taking the tube, because the idiot Sadiq Khan put the tubes at eight-minute intervals, which meant every single tube was rammed with people who have had probably got, had COVID. So I started driving. I, I took, and, and just like you, I didn't know, I went up a street the wrong way. The, the no-entry sign was so high that I couldn't see it from the car, right? I didn't know it was a no-entry sign. So I went to appeal it. I went all the way through the process, and in the end, I ended up just paying it because in the end, it 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 just got so ridiculous. I'm like, all right, I'll just give you the 65 quid just to get rid of it, you
2: know, because they they beat you into submission, don't they? course they do and do you know what? It, there's a grounds for i really felt when this happened to me it happened to me for a reason i wanted to get on your show and say what happened yes I hope that your listeners be very careful with those red crosses over your head do you know probably some people said to me well you should have known but about half the people i know said i would have driven down it myself i wouldn't have had, had a clue what it what it meant yeah but i mean to, to hit you with that it emotionally Mike. you know it crushed me for about three or four days after i just got just crushed I thought, I'm, I'm not even trying to break the law. I'm just trying to do life normal like everybody else. Mm. But our police, they, 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 they are obsessive about getting money off people. And, and people. But if you shoplift, they let you off. Yeah, You say, I'm sorry, or whatever. Oh, well, I mean, uh, well, don't worry about shoplifting. Time.
1: Sex offenders are let off because they say sorry. So, you, you know, know what? that's you know fine. What?
2: I, mean, I, I think we should seriously look at the, 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 the penalties for stuff like sex. They're very serious crimes. Other yeah. countries actually put you the death of that you know it's
1: it's unbelievable listen i feel your pain ben and you have my sympathy you have my utmost sympathy thank you for calling and letting us know uh what's been going on in your world because a lot of people are at the end of their tether now because of the fact that we are being criminalized by the police whereas the criminals are being decriminalized you know just say sorry if you've committed a sexual assault sorry i didn't mean it sorry sorry Why can't you say sorry for speeding? Why can't you say sorry for parking in the wrong place? Why can't you say, I'm sorry I drove in a bus lane or I drove down one of those bleeding motorway lanes with a red X on it? I'm sorry. Surely that should be good enough, shouldn't it? Sorry? This is Talk TV.
4: Fast talk. Street talk. Mike Graham. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. Solid
0: talk. Hot talk. The independent republic of Mike Graham. Mike Graham. The home of
3: common sense talk radio and talk
0: TV welcome back to the
1: independent republic of Mike Graham right here on talk TV it's actually rather a nice day out there the sky is very very blue azure blue you might say Uh, not quite like Italy but I mean you can imagine it Um, London looks spiffy I'd say lovely beautiful maybe the spring has finally sprung and we know that because of course the clocks have gone forward and who better to discuss that with the Peter Hitchens (laughs) the man who explained to us two years ago to the nation's absolute and utter... Um, delight, I have to say, uh, that it all came from the First World War and the Germans, and it was their fault, and we're still doing it. He's going to tell me now why he still feels a bit jet lagged. He's actually called it uh, National Jetlag Day today, uh, because everybody's a bit woozy from having uh, lost an hour's sleep over the weekend. Um, we'll tell you all about that. We'll talk about all of that. We'll talk about, as well, uh, the new government crackdown on antisocial behaviour. We'll also talk a bit about East Germany and much else besides. Coming up later on, Howard Cox is going to be here to discuss, not least a rather unfortunate episode that happened at the weekend, uh, where the cycling czar of uh, Sadiq Khan's in London was attacked by a cyclist uh, as he tried to stop him from cycling through a zebra crossing without stopping. It's all happening out there. But anyway, uh, let's uh, put all that to one side. So, very good morning, to Peter Hitchens. Peter, nice to see you. Morning. Yes. Are you are you, you f- are suffering jet lag? Um, a little bit, but no. because
7: I am one of the very few people in the world who understands this <laughs> business of putting of forward, I have been practicing for it. For some yes. Days, going to bed. Early and I mean, early. It, you are now, It wasn't too bad this morning. Yeah,
1: you are now inextricably linked to with every time the clocks go well, forward. Well, I don't mind this. It, I like it. I it, really, it's, really it's, like it.
7: It's really, it's, it's a, it's a struggle against stupidity. People do things so often because they've always done them. Yes. They won't think about them when challenged, and no. they get quite cross when challenged. But this is a completely stupid thing, mm. which we totally do not need to do. The Scientific American currently, I, I've, I've, I've tweeted this out a lot in the past couple of days as a, an article in it, uh, explaining that research now shows that the day after the clocks go forward uh, and for some days afterwards people have heart attacks, mm. uh, they have industrial and road accidents, uh, they fail to turn up for appointments, they're mistake prone. It is actually National Jet Lag Week. You know, people don't grasp it on the Sunday morning when it's immediately happened because most people don't go to work on Sunday so they they have a respite but Mm. as soon as Monday morning kicks in people realize that they've had and how is it it, different robbed of an hour of sleep how is it different from
1: just going to bed an hour later but it is different from that, isn't it? Because lots of people say go to bed at 1 o'clock in the morning instead of midnight, or, you know, 11 o'clock instead of 10, and that has no effect on them. But if suddenly the clock... Well, moves, I don't know
7: whether it has an effect on them or not. It has an effect on me if I go to bed late uh, later than you do. Perhaps that's because I'm so fantastically old, but I, I, I seem to remember I've always, have yeah. um, always suffered if I've, if I've had less sleep mm. than, I, than I want to have. Most people do. Sleep is an incredibly valuable part yeah. of... Of, of life and health. But no, it's it's not. The difference is everybody's made to do it at once. Mm. And they're made to do it. If your employer had said to you last Friday, sent out a memo to everybody, on Monday morning, come in an hour earlier. Yeah. You said, what? Exactly. Uh, you'd have assumed your employer had gone mad. You right. might well have not obeyed. But when the government effectively does the same thing mm. by jamming the clocks forward forcibly on on, on Saturday night, mm. then everybody does as they're told. And then they say, gosh, they say so much lighter. Well, actually, I have to break it to you. It isn't. It's exactly the same amount of light as there was before. Yeah, It's just the clock has deceived you into thinking that it's in a different but it seems as Let's, though it's lighter into the evening. Not That's if you got up at like. 6 o'clock this morning, it doesn't. Well, luckily I didn't get up well, that Well, I did, and it was dark. Was it? Which it has not been for several weeks yes. and, until now. So li- I, but I actually quite like it dark in the morning. Well, I'm not... I like it or not I like it. lighter, it. I mean, lighter what, in the evening. The thing is, what the normal person does, if you like getting up early in the morning, get up early in the mm. morning. If you like going to bed later at night, go to bed later at night. If you're really so anxious to have more... Uh, more time in the in, in the in the evening when there's daylight. Then arrange with your employers to start work an hour earlier mm. and leave an hour earlier. I, I'm sure most employers would be delighted, but don't make me get up an hour earlier. Don't make millions of other people do it because what's the point? So the original the origin of this it, 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 it goes back even further than, than Kaiser Bill. Does and, it? And, you know there was a man called William Willett. He had a supporter in New Zealander a strange bug hunting eccentric. Well, this man, William Woolwich was, was a, a housing developer. He used to he became very rich, and he used to love getting up extremely early and riding around the suburbs that he built on his horse. Oh, yes. And he would be infuriated by the fact that all the people whose houses he'd built uh, were asleep. Mm. And so he thought the thing to do was to make them wake up early. <laughs> so he, he began this campaign to, to, to move the clocks forward. Nobody paid any attention. Until 1916, when, as I say, Kaiser Bill, yeah. in a panic about the danger of losing the war, said, right, everybody in the whole German Empire will get up an hour earlier yeah. as from tomorrow. So they all did. Cause they,
1: and so his way of making you know, them do that the, was to move
7: the time. But then. then the British government copied it. Yeah. And, the, of course, the Germans then went and lost the war, as, as, as they so often do. And and So, so it didn't even walk, work. It didn't work. Uh, but it persisted. But since then, of course, we've had all manner of explanations. For example, when I was growing
1: up, I used to be told it was because of Scotland, because they didn't want their children going to school in the morning um, or coming home from school in the afternoon uh, in the dark. I can attest to this, that when you live in Scotland... It's quite possible for you not to see daylight at all in the winter, well, because the, if,
7: it's that dark. If the clocks are shunted forward in the winter, which we did in the sixties, of course it is. It's, it's very bad in, mm. in northern and indeed southern latitudes. Those who remember the sixth and nineteen sixties experiment will tell you the tales of winters spent going to school in the dark, yeah. week after week after week. It was very unpopular. Yeah, I mean,
1: I definitely used to go to work. I lived in Glasgow in sort of the early part of this century. I used to go to work um, in the dark, and I used to leave the office sort of mid afternoon in the dark, and quite often during the day it never got very light anyway
7: but the great thing is you see is that because of the the, the the weakening of the European Union and its control over us uh, the whole thing can now be, re- be re-examined and yeah. come to an end we, don't, we used to have to under European law put our clocks forward and backwards on the two dates in, in March and right. October every country in the European Union mm. used to have to do that that's now been dropped that rule is gone right. we don't have to do it at all the, the they're
1: already an hour ahead of us. The anyway, real, yeah, but
7: that's another question. The real—that's their business. They, they're, <laughs> they're, they're, they're foreign. But the the real—the real difficulty is, and the real opportunity is, getting people to understand how important it is that when we do abandon this silliness, we fix the clocks where they ought to be. Yes. Time is natural. The, the noon is a real event. Noon is the point at which the the, the, the the sun strikes the the bit of the earth that you're on at a certain angle. It's it, it's not it's not made up. If you if you have a, a time system which which pretends that noon happened an hour ago or that it will happen right. an hour, you're lying. You're you're making up. Why not have the natural time for the place where you live? Well, wouldn't that make sense? Well, you would think, but maybe then you would have to have increments of noon,
1: then, wouldn't you? You'd have to go. You wouldn't have a time well, zone. The, Say, no, for example, the, in t- Paris, for example, no, if they're an hour ahead of us. I'm sure noon is not an hour later there, you know, is well,
7: this is Well, this is time zones make perfect sense, and they, they were devised at the, the, the end of the 19th century because of railway timetables. Mm. And, of course, then when, when broadcasting and air travel came in, they were, they were equally vital, because right. you, you have to have within, within reason an area around a, a meridian in which the same time is kept, and that's a, a sensible compromise. Yeah. But why, why on earth would you come up with a scheme whereby people in London live on the time in Berlin, which, yeah. is what, which is what would happen if we had the clock set permanently an hour forwards. Mm. Uh, it, it, people in, in Spain have for many, many years lived on Berlin time, yeah. particularly ridiculously. You know why? Because they're in the European Union? No, because General Franco, who was a great fan <laughs> of Hitler, uh, introduced German time to Madrid in the 1930s to suck up to, to oh, the, the Fuhrer. And they've be never better. abandoned it. Poor Portugal next door didn't do the same thing. And then they tried it. And it was so horrible. They gave it up after five years.
1: Yes. Because Portugal, I think, is the same time as us, right? Yes, it is. Yes, it Whereas should be. You Spain look at a map,
7: the lines of longitude go... Spain go, isn't. Go, no, Spain is, Spain is... Spain being on Berlin time is particularly ridiculous. Yeah.
1: It's and also, one of the when reasons go, why they eat at
7: such odd times. When
1: you Spain, go the yeah. other way, yeah. it doesn't sort of compute, does it? Because no. I remember when I lived in America, as I'm sure you do, when you were crossing various time zones... It became quite confusing because there was some, and in fact there was a great story, wasn't there, a couple of um, New Year's ago where a a specific Pacific island decided that they no longer wanted to be in the time zone they were in because they preferred to be in the Australian time zone because they wanted to do more business with them. So they immediately just missed out the hour of midnight on New Year's Eve, so it meant they didn't have New Year. Well, that must I can't remember the name a, of that. must it was, have been a blow. I, I mean, there think are, Vanuatu or somewhere like that. There
7: are some states, I think when you're uh, crossing over the Hoover Dam, uh, if, you, if you go eastwards out of Las Vegas, you run into a very oh. strange time anomaly. Yeah, there's but,
1: a place that's like two and a half hours different it, from New but York. But the,
7: the, the states can do what they like. And yeah. a lot of American states are yeah. now doing what well, I suggest, which is going back to natural ah. time, right. though some others are not. But I only understand all this. And the, uh, it, 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 as I say, it's become a. People accuse me of being obsessed with it. I'm actually interested in it.
1: I think it's a very interesting subject. Well, I think
7: what's fascinating about it is the willingness of people to believe, to do as they're told right. it, without well, time, thinking.
1: Also, time is something that is not really explainable to people because
7: it's a concept, a construct. But it's, it's not, you see. Well, it's, it's a, it's a real is. thing, it's, 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 it's simply a, a measurement of something which happens. The planet revolves. In, in, in twenty four hours, right? Uh, you 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 could divide that up into in, into forty eight gimbecks or or yes, That's what I mean in terms but of it, what it, time it is. It, 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 it takes that length of time yeah. to revolve. That's what we're measuring, right? And that's that's when but I what I'm when, when I flew backwards across the international dateline, yeah, as I did in nineteen ninety two, I think it was. Uh, then I realized for the first time exactly what what was going on. because well, I, I, I left suppose- I left Siberia. Yeah, i was I left Siberia. On, uh, on Monday morning and arrived in Alaska the previous Sunday afternoon. Right. It makes you think. It does. I recommend I it to, pose, to anybody. I
1: used to pose this question when I did my overnight show, and there was a lot of time to fill, yeah. uh, and I used to get people to ring in. If you took Concorde from London to New York and you just kept taking it, would you eventually catch up with yesterday? Because when you would leave London at, say, nine, it was I think it was a three-hour flight, five-hour yeah. time difference, so you would get there two hours before you left, technically. In terms nice. of time. Uh, the t- so the if only, you kept the going, the only time I took
7: Concord West was Washington DC, I see, you know we arrived pretty much about the same time as we'd left. Right. So it was it was lunchtime when we left. So, so if you left at nine there. if you left but,
1: at nine A. M. London time, um, that would be four AM New York. So you would arrive at seven. Actually right, yeah. So you would arrive two hours before you left.
7: Yeah. It, That's but, why
1: I wondered if you could ever actually go all the way around. And come back before you well, went. Well,
7: that's you have to you have to ask Albert Einstein about that aspect. Of yeah, it. But unfortunately, I, he can, wasn't available. What the, I can so. tell you is that if you if you fly from Siberia to Alaska, uh, you do go back a day.
1: And what's the what's the effect on your body clock then? Going I don't back really know. I
7: just finished two and a half years in the Soviet Union, and I left. You're just it, glad to get anywhere. Back entrance, and <laughs> I, the moment I got off the plane in Nome, Alaska, I went to a, a wonderful place called Fat Fred's Diner, mm. where I had the sort of meal you could not get anywhere in the USSR. Right. And so, whatever effects it may have had on me, I don't know. Right. But I was just enjoying myself. Too yes, much.
1: very good. Well, it's a, it's a fascinating conversation. I could never stop talking about this kind of thing.
7: But we will talk we
1: about something else. We right must stop there. because time is of the essence, obviously. Um, Peter Hitchens is here. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, East Germany coming up. Also, maybe a little bit about uh, the latest government plan uh, to fool you into thinking they're doing something. This is Talk TV.
3: See it, hear it,
1: think it. Talk radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Peter Hitchens is here. Um, let's talk about something other than the clocks. Uh, let's talk about
7: East Germany. Well, yes, I, I wrote a review this uh, last weekend of a book by uh, Katja Hoyer, mm. a, a, a German historian who I think now lives in uh, in, in this country and is bilingual, uh, which she's written about her, the country of her birth. Yeah. Uh, it's called Beyond the Wall and it's a fantastic book i recommend it to anybody but i i disagree with it quite a lot because mm-hmm. the thing i catch Hoyer is that she she was born in east germany her father was in the east german air force uh, but it collapsed when she was four right whereas i used to go there quite a lot mm-hmm. as, an, as an adult and i remember it well and uh, and how it, how it, it, fascinating it, it always was but also how very nasty it was you couldn't yeah. take that trip which i used to do on the, the S-Bahn the, um, the, the, the 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 overground railway in berlin to friedrichstrasse station through the border with the watchtowers and the and the dogs and, and everything the else. checkpoints you could not and when you got to friedrichstrasse there were there were actually border troops with submachine guns standing up in the galleries right. of the station it was there was a whole air of menace mm. and then you walked out having finally got through passport control and been forced to change your money into the east german yeah. funny money He walked out, and the air was different. It stank of brown coal and and two-stroke exhaust, and the whole the the air of, of East Berlin, indeed of East Germany in general. Was a sort of grey brown Mm. tinge Mm. on on everything, and it just felt like a completely different world. It was amazing to go so rapidly from West Berlin, which was Uh, literally just across the street. Oh, it it really was no distance at all. You Ah. just came out of this tunnel after having gone through and and stepped out into into Friedrichstrasse itself. Mm. It's another world, Mm. and it was uh, the funny thing about it is that politically correct people in the West now are beginning to make excuses for it because one of the things it did was it achieved, I think, the highest ever level of female employment in yes, any, any country this. in the world. Yeah. They got it up to 90% mm. of, of, of women were actually working in factories or offices for a wage instead of at home. And an awful lot of Western liberal reformers think this is terrific. Mm. And Katja Hoyer herself goes on a bit about how um, how women were, um, I'm trying to remember the phrase, uh, perhaps I think had more opportunities in East Germany than they were. Western Sisters or stuff, well, they had to have more opportunities mm. because they, they were forced pretty much mm. out to work because right. the, the, the country had, as most of those countries did, a, a, a labour shortage.
1: And did it have one of those economies where if you did take money in, you weren't allowed to take it out?
7: Oh, that was definitely the case, yes. I mean, you, you, you you were forced to take the money in and you had to spend it there. Right. Uh, if, uh, if, if you, I, I never did, but if you change money illegally there... You could get into very big trouble. They have one of the things. One weird memory. There was a there was a shop on the Schoenhauser Allée which sold the most beautiful toy trains. They made really really yeah. good toy trains. And it was so tempting because they were priced in East German marks, which if you had if you couldn't had change. changed them on the black market it would have meant you could an entire train set for about twenty quid. Mm. The temptation to buy it all up and cart it back through the, through the border was huge, but you would have just been caught because you couldn't conceivably have had that much money. Right. Uh, so yes, it was it was very much closed. They they lived they lived better than a lot of these European countries. Uh, some people quite liked it. Some people still do. I mean, there are, there's this famous nostalgia. And the, a lot of the older people say, well, it was more, um, more orderly and people would behave better towards each other and all, all that, uh, that kind of stuff. And there is some truth in it because East Germany after the war fell was just wiped out mm. all the all the factories closed all the workplaces closed everybody lost their jobs mm. everybody lost their status and whatever, whatever it and was and it didn't and, and become all... like west germany did it? oh no it, it didn't They spent Which a lot of they money it it, it's been a fortune some of the east german towns now absolutely beautiful because they've been they were they were uh, they were historically lovely but have fallen into decay and now they're really nice but the point is that, that it's it's been on my mind for some time that it, it's, East Germany is a sort of hate figure among nations because of the Stasi secret police and the Berlin Wall and people being shot trying to get out, which is all true. Uh, but now people are beginning to say, "Well, actually, maybe there were some good points." And I think we have to watch out for that. Yes, because I don't, I don't think they were. I think if you if you look at a society and say, "Well, that was good because they had lots of women in work," so, well, why was it yeah. good that they had lots of women mm. in work in West Germany at the same time? very much the opposite view was taken that the the, the the women who went out to work when they could have been raising their own children were actually rather um rather criticized yes. as, as raven mothers Ravensmutter. and it's 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 a it, i personally think that the the constant pressure in our society on women to go out to work and the the denigration and and scorn poured upon people who raise their own children is a mistake and actually raising children is a fantastically skilled and responsible occupation it is and we take people away from it and 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 make them go and with if, if they going to you know, going to be bosses of major corporations or high court judges well okay great but most women don't become high court judges or bosses of major corporations when they go out to work. That's not what they do. And a lot of them don't earn enough to pay for the childcare they then have to provide. So I wouldn't say East Germany was that much of a model, but that's where I took... that's where I, I, I disagreed with Katja Hoyer, is that she's more sympathetic to some aspects yes, of that society. but nostalgia
1: often is rather
7: rose-tinted, isn't it? When well, you look But back in her case, yes, you see, it's one of the inter- incidents in the book, it, it, she actually describes how her father was, was taking part in some huge parade, and he, he made a joke about how, how much trouble they'd be in if, uh, if, they, if they got it wrong on the parade. Uh, and for making that joke, he, he was arrested that night and put in the cells. It was her own father. Oh. And it's an extraordinary story in the in the book, which I haven't... The, the other reviewers don't seem to have, have, have mentioned it, but it seems to me to be an amazing thing in, in your family history for your father to say, well, I was actually arrested for making a joke yes. by the regime. That's the kind of place it was. Mm. Uh, whatever its, its policy towards women may have been, I don't think you ever... And I
1: wonder it, if we can draw that parallel... That. Um, I'm trying to find as we speak, so apologies for looking down at what I'm looking at here, but I'm trying to find, I can't find it, a piece that was written this weekend um, about the new kind of um, establishment that you talked about um, many moons ago, having been created by the sort of Blair administration, the fact that we now live in this kind of woke society, where the establishment is more left than right, because these are the children of Tony Blair, effectively, the people who have been to university, who have been... You know, who have become quite hard line about what it is they believe in.
7: Oh very much so and, and not, 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 not at all merciful or tolerant uh, towards anybody who disagrees with them. This mm. is the legacy of 1968 or oh, 1968, students writing in the streets of Paris, uh, the Prague Spring and everything else, all sunshine and love. Actually, the ideology that came out of 68 is pretty hard line mm. and if you if, if, as long as you do what it tells you to do, that's fine, right. but if you dissent from it in any way, they come down on you quite hard.
1: Yes, because, funnily enough, we talked about this, didn't we, last week, about the, this idea of giving childcare um, free to people yeah. uh, all through all sorts of generational periods, and that was when East Germany sort of came up. It's almost yeah. as though we're revisiting it.
7: Well, we too, but it, It's because it is one of the biggest subjects, actually, in, yeah. in, in modern society and politics. It's completely changed the way people live.
1: Yes. Finally, um, hostility to Iran. You talked yeah, the
7: I, I I went. I was very lucky a few years ago. I went. I went to Iran um, in, on, on a trip with my friend Jason Resian, who's a fantastic American Iranian journalist who who, who wanted uh, at that time to try and change the silly Western perceptions of Iran. And I went. He's he has family there. Mm. I went and visited people in their homes. i met a lot of Iranians and found how fantastically pro-Western. Yeah. a lot of them are. Uh, and what a, uh, how close it comes rare in that part of the world to being a real civil society mm. as well as being a very beautiful place and one which I long to go back to but I can't because my friend Jason shortly after I went there with him was arrested and accused of spying Goodness. totally falsely yeah. and his and his wife as well and they were thrown into solitary confinement and ultimately basically he was ransomed out he was, what they had done was taken him as a hostage right. and so th- th- two things i learned about Iran one it, it wasn't what we're all told it was, too, that it still does have an immensely sinister and ruthless mm. ruling regime, uh, which uh, I would like to undermine. But I don't think that the hostility of the West to Iran has successfully undermined that regime. In fact, I got the strong impression when I was there that the Revolutionary Guard and the Ayatollahs all actually fed on the world's hostility. Mm. They liked it because they could say to their people, look, the, the West threatens us all the yes. time. They will, they, they sanction like you. And, and, and the, the hostility of the West, I think, helps maintain that regime Mm. and we would be much better off dropping the sanctions opening up as much as we possibly could that would undermine that regime and if we did undermine that regime and iran became even relatively free it would be a really great thing Mm. for iran and for the world and i just think we should be less and the thing about this 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 um apple tv series Tehran, is that it portrays the Iranians as human, yeah. and I think it's very important that people should remember they're yes. not all they people. I that
1: think that's generally a good thing. So I suppose yeah. the Israelis would object though to, to, to well, humanising the Iranians. It's an Israeli,
7: It's a, ultimately it's an, it's an Israeli. It's an Israeli-made program mm. like the the fascinating other great Israeli um, TV series Fowder is it, fantastic, about this, isn't it? really good, and again it's Terrifying. successful because again it portrays Arabs as. Mm. as, as as human beings with, um, with with normal emotions and and and, and sometimes in, in the right. Yeah. There's some very good TV coming out of Israel mm. which tells you something about what current society it is. Indeed.
1: Well Peter, we're out of time sadly, but uh, thank you very much indeed. We'll see you next, next time. Uh, we won't be changing the clocks between now and then hopefully, you know. um, but uh, we'll see you soon. Uh, this is Talk TV of course. Coming up next, uh, we've got plenty to do. We're going to be talking later to Howard Cox about the latest business uh, around ULES zones, which seems to be going we're also going to scotland because later today we'll find out who the new first minister is going to be uh, we'll go up to edinburgh coming next on talk tv that puts you in the driving seat.
5: Whatever happens will have
4: an impact on your life. Access all arguments. No, this is not right. Essential, edgy, engaging. I think that sounds absolutely on the money. Vanessa Feltz at Drive.
3: Weekday afternoons from 4 on Talk Radio and Talk TV. Oh,
8: uh, here we go. One of the greatest broadcasting legends is back. It's a goal! Mark Saggers. It's a goal! He's furiouser than ever. It's a goal! White-hot,
1: high-scoring, hackles-up, heat-of-the-moment recap and reviews of all
0: the weekend's essential sports.
1: There's nobody in midfield. Sags is back. Yes!
0: Come on! Look back with Saggers. Back
3: in business Sunday nights from 7 on Talk Radio and Talk TV. Get in! On DAB+, on the app, Talk Radio and Talk TV.
1: Welcome back to the Independent Rep- Republic of Mike Graham, no less. Uh, I could barely say it there. I don't know why. Uh, coming up tonight, of course, Piers Morgan is joined by Israel Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, so we've just been talking about Israel. You'll be able to see that interview. It's unfiltered. It's unmissable. Uh, Talk TV, Sky 522, Virgin Media 606, Freeview 237. Or you can listen, of course, on Talk Radio, uh, on DAB or via the app. Uh, I'll be on with Jeremy Carl just before that from 7pm, uh, of course. And then Ian Collins is here from 1, Vanessa Phelps from 4. So much going on tonight and today throughout the course of the show. Uh, much more for us to do as well. Let's talk now, though, uh, to Mike Blackley, who is, of course, a political editor of the Scottish Daily Mail. We've been speaking to him over the last couple of weeks because of all the various shenanigans going on up there. Today, around about 2pm, the SNP leadership result will be announced. Will it be Humza Youssef, as the bookmakers think? Will it be Kate Forbes? Will it be Ash Regan? Uh, Michael, a very good, uh, morning, or very good morning to you, I should say.
6: Hi, good morning, Mike.
1: So, I mean, uh, excitement building. I mean, it seems like a lot of people still think Hamza Yusuf is going to get the uh, get the nod. What, what are you hearing?
6: Well, I think nobody really has any idea exactly who's going to win. I think it's definitely going to be pretty close when it comes to the result this afternoon. At the start of the contest, Hamza Youssef very much looked like the strong favourite. He was the candidate that most of the SNP cabinet wanted to win he's also the candidate that the people that show up at smp branch constituency meetings hamza Yusuf seems the favored candidate there but there's a whole mass of the smp membership that nobody really knows all that much about they don't hear that much from them and i think it's going to ultimately come down to them as to whether it is Hamza Yusuf, that wins this, or whether it's there's actually a bit of a surprise and the finance secretary Kate Forbes wins. She's not had that much support from within the mm. the politicians in the SNP. So I think her winning would be bad news for Nicola Sturgeon and the the SNP establishment. Hamza Yusuf is their pick. So if he doesn't win, it's gonna be a lot of a lot of division in the SNP. Right.
1: I mean, the SNP in general, as far as I can see anyway, um, has gone a bit quiet over the last couple of weeks. I mean, you may say that's not the case in Scotland, but but on the sort of national stage, there's not much activity, it seems to me, um, on social media in particular. The cybernats, as we used to call them, you know, the people who bang on about independence every single five minutes of the day, seems to have gone a bit quiet.
6: Well, actually, I think one of the interesting things in terms of the the cybernats as you, you describe them is that there's a lot of the there's a lot of these people that were very vocal on social media that have almost turned against the party at the moment. They yeah. they've become concerned about some of the the way that things are dealt with, issues like the Alex Salmond investigation and the inquiry into the handling of complaints. They they were concerned by the SNP. Gender reform is another one. Where uh, they th- they think women's voices haven't haven't been heard. So, actually, the the people that were most vocal on social media, including uh, a pretty uh, well known blog, uh, have have almost turned against the the leadership under Esse- under yeah. Sturgeon.
1: And what does that mean for the future? Then, will they come back if they if they get a candidate that they want? And who would that be?
6: Well, I, th- I think that whatever happens, whoever wins today the new leader is going to be taking over a really divided party because the, the last few weeks have been pretty astonishing. This leadership contest has been hugely divisive. There's been open civil war between the different candidates and the different candidates are proposing a very different route to how they would run the country as First Minister. So Hamza Youssef very much has seen himself as the, the continuity candidate who had tried to Continue along similar lines to Nicholas Sturgeon. However, I think he would he would face pretty big splits mm. uh, if he came in, and there'd be a real question whether he has the communication skills and the and the ability, frankly, to continue to uh, cover up the the splits in the SNP to heal those divisions in the way that Nicholas Sturgeon mm. possibly managed to. If it's Kate Forbes that wins, her immediate challenge is going to be whether she can actually form a strong cabinet, because there's a lot of people that are concerned in the SNP and in the cabinet as well uh, about her Christian beliefs or views on same-sex marriage. So short term, possibly the most volatility for the SNP would be if Kate Forbes won. However, longer term, I, th- I think there's real challenges for them if Hamza Yusuf wins. Yeah. And I mean, there's been a lot of talk about
1: police investigations and missing money and all of that. Yesterday's Sunday Mail front page uh, said bye bye SNP, B-U-Y, and hello to the cops, um, suggesting that the fraud squad uh, might be brought in. Is that um, something you're looking at today?
6: And um, it's uh it's an issue that's rumbling away. This investigation into SNP finances has been going on for a, a huge amount of time. So it's it's not been dropped by the police. They obviously think that there's there's questions. This all relates to uh, independence fund that was raised by the, the party under Nicholas Sturgeon's husband, the former chief executive, Peter Murrow. Uh There's questions about how the £600,000 that was raised has been spent and whether it's been spent on other matters other than independence. So that led to some complaints from SNP members who had donated to the fund and it's been investigated by police. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon and Peter Murrow insist that they haven't been interviewed by police yet. Um, So it's something that's been rumbling on and it's certainly an issue that there's a a lot of focus on at the moment.
1: Yes. And they've sort of had to come out and say that, haven't they? Because there was all these rumours swirling around that there had been some kind of interview process.
6: Uh, that that was the there was a lot of online rumours as to whether that was the the single issue that mm. pushed Nicola Sturgeon into into resigning. Yeah. To be honest, I, I I don't believe that that's really the case. I mean, I th- I think Nicola Sturgeon's resignation was ultimately down to the the fact that she had boxed herself into a corner. She she had stepped up the threat of trying to turn the next general election into a de facto referendum on independence. And when she was looking at the opinion poll, she probably knew that there was a real chance that in the next general election, the SNP were heading to to lose seats. Right. And if she had talked up the independence elements of that, then uh, losing seats would have killed that off entirely. And yeah. it, it would have probably led to her resignation. So I, I think that was ultimately what, what led to Nicola Sturgeon's resignation? The fact that she she could have been uh, being forced to resign come the next general election, whereas at least choosing this timing allowed her to to say that she was she was doing this of her own choice.
1: Yes, and what next for Nicola Sturgeon? Because we saw rather surprisingly, she suddenly popped up on uh, Loose Women the other day. Um, she's been doing a, su- a few sort of you know rounds of interviews and. Whatever we hear stories of her talking about, maybe going to join the United Nations. I mean, what? I mean, it's, it's it's a big change for Scotland, but it's an even bigger change for her.
6: Yes, it is going to be a big change. One one of the quite amusing stories over the over the weekend was that Nicola Sturgeon, for the first time in her life, is taking driving lessons. Oh yes, so uh, <laughs> so perhaps. Uh, she realises that the, the next job might require to, or her to actually drive a car right. uh, rather than... Well, good luck getting a parking spot at in Edinburgh, which it. is
1: what I would say. I don't think she's going she's gonna to have to find herself a new house as well, isn't she?
6: <laughs> well, um, so in, t- in terms of what comes next for her, I mean, a lot of people have thought that something like a United Nations role might, might be in the pipeline. It's the sort of thing uh, that, that she talks about a a, a lot of issues that that might lend themselves to a a UN role, but of course the UK government would need to be nominating her for that role. So uh, it remains to be seen whether they they would be willing to do that. Yes.
1: Well, Michael Gove was asked about her uh, on uh, Laura Kunzberg's show yesterday, and he was very gracious, but it seemed to take a while to drag it out of him to be gracious, because he was almost, it looked like he was about to say something you might regret, and then he said that she'd worked very hard for the government and the UK government as well. So they're all being quite nice about her.
6: Yeah, Michael Gove usually does try to be quite nice in public about Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP because he always always talks about how he wants to work productively with them. Mm. But it did seem when he was asked to list Nicola Sturgeon's <laughs> greatest achievement, there was a long, long pause. There was. And he seemed to be struggling frantically to think <laughs> about what he wanted to say.
1: Yes, exactly right. Well, listen, Michael, great to, to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. We'll look ahead to two o'clock. We'll look forward to that uh, this afternoon. That'll be the Ian Collins show when they announce the new leader of the SNP and by uh, extension, the new uh, First Minister of Scotland, um, I wonder who that's going to be. It'd be great if it's Kate Forbes, I think. Oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand uh, is the number. We'll take your calls. Coming next on Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Lots to do between now and uh, 1 o'clock. We've got uh, Ian Collins coming in, of course, then to tell us what's going on on his show. What we do know will be on his show uh, is the announcement that the SNP have got a new leader uh, up in Scotland. Nicola Sturgeon stepped down a little while ago. Uh, she will now be replaced this afternoon around about 2 o'clock, supposedly uh, by um, either one of three people, Humza Yusuf, Kate Forbes or Ash Regan. Right now though, uh, let us talk to our good friend, Professor Carol Sikora, uh, because of course Um, Rutherford Cancer Care is an organisation he's been associated with for quite a long time Um, he's got some good news for us uh, on the front of what he said a while ago to us that there were some cancer care sort of centres which were pretty much lying dormant and weren't being used by the NHS and he was hopeful that they could become uh, active again and I think he's going to be telling us now that that has exactly happened. Professor Carroll a very good afternoon to you.
8: Good afternoon. So, I mean,
1: you and I, good to see you. You and I spoke about this a little while ago and you were saying, wouldn't it be good if these centres could be used by the NHS? So, So what can you tell us?
8: fantastic news from liverpool the center there which is beautiful has two linear accelerators radiotherapy machines state-of-the-art an mri scanner a ct scanner and a beautiful clinic area has been bought by the nhs locally and tied into this cancer center which is only 100 yards down the road Brilliant. which is hopelessly undercapacitized so this really will help the people of liverpool tremendously right so so um, this
1: can move um, move the sort of the waiting list along hopefully it has,
8: and the thing about Liverpool, it has no proton facility, and that's what the central management of the NHS don't want. They don't want to let protons out of the ration box. It's mm. a type of radiotherapy that's more precise, and so the other three centres which do have proton facilities are still languishing, empty. They could be opened within a week, uh, and you know we still have a huge backlog in mm. cancer, as you know. You've talked, we've talked about yes. this, and it's just so difficult to somehow grasp it right. and uh, hopefully we'll get there there's plenty of people with money that will put it into to do a, what's called a public-private partnership so the nhs use part of it private sector uses another part and overseas patients can come as well so the whole thing balances out to the the money men yes. who are vital for all this but uh it's just so slow, and I can't believe it's it's nearly it'll be a year in June that everything's shut.
1: Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I mean, you and I probably spoke maybe six months ago about this, and it doesn't seem like yesterday to be <laughs> honest. But the time has flown so much uh, of re- uh, in recent times. Um, and and maybe this is also um, a good sign of perhaps the NHS being a bit lateral thinking, you know? Because we could see we could see lots of partnerships that they could do in situations, perhaps with with dental work. With, with GP surgeries, all manner of things. And, I mean, you'll get, no doubt, people complaining that, oh, it's all about selling off the NHS. It's really not. It's just about dealing with medicine in a more grown-up kind of 21st century way, isn't it? Exactly.
8: And, you know, if you look at other countries, I've recently visited South Africa, 38 cancer centres owned by a group called ICON, mm. totally private sector, all the patients there, or the majority of patients, they're not private patients, they're government patients going under contract under the government insurance scheme. All countries in the, the, the civilized part of the world have some sort of universality. And by that, I mean everyone is covered for some level of healthcare. Right. The problem here is that we want the nhs the public sector to deliver it as not the private sector uh you know if, if you needed an operation tomorrow you wouldn't care whether you went to a public or a private hospital you might rather like to go to the yes. private hospital where there's wine with you dinner for example
1: <laughs> well but, indeed and tell us about this proton treatment because it's not available generally on the nhs is it no this is really a bit of a national scandal i
8: was involved way back 20 years ago in the planning for it there were going to be four centers paid by the government it got reduced to two: Manchester and UCLH in London, and you know the number of patients going through a fraction of what should be going through. We're treating less than one percent of all radiotherapy patients with protons. The number should be ten percent. Everybody knows it. Other countries are doing it. Spain has just ordered eleven. Uh, proton beam machines to get up to speed. France, Germany are all far ahead of us. And it, it we'll get there in the end, but it takes so long. And uh, the trouble is the bureaucracy is really killing innovation within the NHS.
1: Yes. And I'm, and I'm reading really- a story in, in in The Times this morning, uh, Carol, in which it says the NHS must scrap unnecessary appointments for cancer patients to speed up treatment. And this is a report that's come from various health leaders um, and um, basically... Cancer, um, p- cancer doctors saying that you know there's an awful lot of red tape, which doesn't surprise me when it comes to no. treating cancer.
8: Absolutely, I mean, it's a bit of a surprise it came out this morning, but it's true. Um, you know, this, booking people in for unnecessary appointments costs money as well as wasting their time. And you know, in most countries, you'd get sorted out in a day. You'd have all your tests done the same. You take a good book, and by the end of the day, you'll have the results.
1: Right. Oh, I think we've just slightly frozen there. The report I'm talking about here is a paper led by the Evoke Incisive Health Organisation, commissioned actually by AstraZeneca. Uh, the Times managed to get their hand on it. They said that there are short-term practical steps that could unlock extra capacity in NHS cancer services unnecessary appointments are costly occupy scarce clinical time and are stressful for patients and i mean one of the things we talked about carol the other day was martina navratilova gave an interview to piers morgan which we watched here on talk tv and and talking to some people afterwards we were sort of saying well in a way she's fortunate that she had those cancers she had two different kinds of cancers in two different parts of her body um that it happened in america because american outcomes are still an awful lot better than ours aren't they
8: They are. And it's mainly due to delay in diagnosis and getting on with treatment. So pointless tests, pointless waiting. I mean, it's like Heathrow on a bank holiday in the NHS sometimes. You've got a series of tests and a series of queues. Mm. And they're sequential. You you can't go through one queue and get out the other side. You have to wait, going through security, going through passport control, all this sort of stuff. And eventually you get through and you get started on treatment. The target here is 62 days from diagnosis to treatment. Mm. You'd sue if you were in the States, if someone said you wait two months before you can have treatment. And we don't. No one seems to take it to heed. That no, and better. this
1: is one of the problems with this sort of waiting list uh, situation, isn't it? Because a lot, an awful lot of people are waiting to see an NHS doctor for some kind of procedure, not necessarily cancer. But there's actually more people waiting for the second appointment, having had one and then being referred elsewhere. And I'm told there's like 10 million on that list. And many of those yeah. will have cancer. I and you know, 10
8: million is nearly a
1: sixth of the, yeah. the population
8: of the UK, which is amazing, mm.
1: statistics. It really is. And I mean, I know this is a very small step, but I mean, hopefully in in that particular area, if you live in that area, you will be uh, uh, a lot quicker getting through the system. Do they kind of will they be able to import people, as it were? You say they'll they'll have some patients from overseas. Would they be able to take patients from, say, London or from Manchester or anything like that?
8: I suspect for diagnostic tests, no, but for treatment, yes. And I think what we've got to look at, there are 60 places you can have all forms of cancer treatment within the NHS. Let's look at which are doing it faster, where the waiting lists are less. Just like driving tests, people select the driving test centre where they can get it sooner, even if it's the other end of the country. Uh, Why not cancer treatment? I wouldn't mind staying in a hotel for four weeks if I could be treated next week. Yes. Uh, Many people would feel like that.
1: Yeah, absolutely right, because it is literally life or death. Carol, thank you very much indeed uh, for talking to us. Professor Carol Sikora, Medical Director there at Rutherford Cancer Centres. One of them in Liverpool uh, now going to be available for NHS use, which is a good good piece of news, it has to be said. But also, um, and you'll know this if you are waiting for some of these ridiculous tests that the NHS does give you, um, there's far too much red tape involved in cancer care. There's far too much red tape involved in all manner of doctors and uh, uh, situations and GP surgeries and the rest. Uh, We'll look into that a little bit more perhaps later in the week. This from Graham in Manchester. Uh, He says, in Liverpool Street in Manchester, just off the end of the M602, Andy Burnham and his cronies took a two-lane in each direction road that was very busy at peak times and reduced it to one lane in each direction, fitting cycle lanes on both sides with red tarmac, raised curbs and all the rest of it. It's now rammed with traffic, but it's beautiful, man. It's so pretty and utterly useless. I regularly drive it and have never seen a cyclist on it at a cost of millions, designed to be totally anti motorist Burnham should hang his head in shame. Uh, which is particularly ironic given that he's just been done for 2,000 quid and a fine uh, for travelling at nearly 70 miles an hour in a 40, uh, which I think was one of those reduced um, speed zones. So uh, Andy Burnham uh, getting plenty of the wrong kind of publicity today. Let's talk to Dave, who's in Dudley. Hello, Dave. Hello, Mike. How are you doing,
0: sir? Fine, thanks. You want Great to talk show. about Tom McNeil? Yeah, yeah, I think um, he's probably the part of the problem with the police, He seems to be um, making excuses for them, blaming everyone else, and doesn't seem to be doing anything himself. No. I mean, it's always Um, about the money, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then blaming people just because they're poor. Yeah. They turn out to be criminals. I've never
1: understood that logic. I mean, why should you become a criminal just because you haven't got any money?
0: Exactly. Exactly. Um, so how long has he been in charge then? What's he been doing since he's been in charge? Um, well, I, I didn't even know who, who he was until he came on your show. Right, right. <laughs> Basically. Um, obviously, we know the mayor and the MP. My MP's is uh, uh, Marco Longa. He's okay. a very good, he's a good guy. I yeah. speak to him quite often, yeah. And, um, but like I say, I didn't know... I, thought he was Labour, but I didn't know uh, his name until yeah. he
1: came on. Yeah. And, um, yeah, well, he's banging the old anti-Tory drum, saying we need more money and all that, but he's now getting more money. I'd be interested to see what happens in the next year or so, see whether he manages yeah. to crack down on crime.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I had assumed that you had a call on earlier on, a lady who phoned 999 after crying, yeah. crime, um, broke into a car, and they told her off for calling 999. Yeah. The same thing happened to me when I had my car stolen. Oh, that you're not supposed to, to call 999 for that either? No, no, no. It's so unbelievable, isn't it? Do you ever get it back? Uh, no, no, I've never
1: found it again, mate. No. It's probably been driven around in Serbia somewhere or something. You never know. Dave, listen, thanks very much indeed. Um, here's one from Francis in Arundel who says Mike, please help. I've been trying to find an NHS dentist, but not one between Brighton and Portsmouth or up as far as Horsham. What are we supposed to do with toothache? Deary me. Well, I can't tell you what you're supposed to do. um, But the trouble is, most people will end up ending up going into casualty, into A&E, because you've got a toothache, which is not really the place you should be going. But if it is bothering you to that extent, I think that's what you have to do. And they'll have to find you a dentist. Because now I know how difficult that is. It is absolutely impossible to find a dentist in many, many parts of England and Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland. It's ridiculous, isn't it? The National Health Service, don't make me laugh, this is Talk TV.